Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick, and it's October, and though we cover horror movies a lot on this show, we I guess we, we have to do some really intense horror this month, and so what better time to introduce our very first Lucio Fulci movie on Weird House. That's right, Lucio Fulci's 1981 film, The House by the Cemetery. Uh, this is a just a bloody and bonkers tale. Uh, that has multiple elements in it that I think are, are worth uh, geeking out over. And it also feels, on some level, it feels like the perfect film, too, uh, to to discuss this week, because as of this week, Weird House Cinema has completed its first journey around the sun. We've been doing these episodes for, uh, for a year now, uh, and you've been either putting up with them or <laughs> enjoying them with us uh, for a year, and so we, we appreciate that. Now, Rob, this movie was your pick, so I, I assume this must you must have some kind of personal history with it. What what is your connection to House by the Cemetery? I think it was the first uh, Fulci film that I saw that really connected with me. That uh, the first film where I where I felt like I mean, there even his wor- worst films, uh, his his less celebrated films. They often there's generally something enjoyable in them. Uh, th- but but sometimes if you don't if you're not really a connoisseur it's easy to, to get caught up on the things that don't work uh-huh. uh, and so I think I'd had that experience with some of his other films like uh, what New York Ripper and is it New York Ripper yeah I think so and, I've never seen and, that one and Manhattan Baby which is a wonderful I love the title Manhattan Baby because it <laughs> it's it's kind of implies a certain um, under like a, a, a B cinema international idea of what New York was. Mm-hmm. And therefore you could just put the word uh, Manhattan in front of baby and it takes on sinister uh, qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, but those were all films where I, I, I think I saw more of the flaws than the, uh, uh, the than the genius. And, and in this film, uh, the genius stood out to me. Uh, so I, I was really excited to revisit it. And I found that in revisiting it, I got to appreciate all the bonkers stuff a lot more. I feel like my, my memory had kind of selectively cut out a lot of the uh, the weirder plot holes in this film. And I mainly remembered like a really great monster. I remembered some, uh, uh, you know, some weird scenes and some heightened uh, tension. Uh, but ultimately, this is just a, a wonderful, weird uh, pick. Well, so we've been talking recently a number of times about uh, specifically about these rub the fur movies, movies that are more about a, a vision of, of audiovisual texture than they are mm-hmm. about the, the, the narrative contents of the film. And uh, it's funny that that Fulci never came up when we were talking about these before, because I think in the most disgusting possible way, Fulci was deeply committed to making rub the fur type movies. Cinema as a as a almost purely aesthetic exercise over a narrative one. And so I've seen a number of Fulci horror movies. And I can't remember a single one of them for its <laughs> characters or plot. Instead, what you what you remember from these movies are scenes and images. So I tend to think of, of Fulci as a um, – I think of his approach to movie making as kind of similar to a child creating shoebox dioramas, except, of course, they're strewn with ludicrous amounts of blood and gore. Uh, so he has like an extraordinary eye for these memorable set pieces of weirdness and wet violence. But on the narrative level, these scenes and the characters in them always feel just 
barely held together by the vaguest of narrative logic. Every Fulci movie I have ever seen feels like it takes place in a dream where in every scene, you know, it's, it's like that moment in a dream where some things are going on around you, but you couldn't necessarily explain how you got there or why. Now, like a dream, you can. The, I think what, what I do, or what I have done in the past with full sheet movies, is afterwards I kind of reflect on the dream, and and sort of ascribe it uh, a structure, you know. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you can certainly do that with a film like this. You can be like, okay, well, this was at heart a film about a house that is haunted. People move into said haunted house, have encounters with the haunt. And, uh, you know, there are consequences for all of that. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that's basically the plot. But what we actually witness on, on screen is a, is a lot more, I don't know, frenzied. And, uh, and, and like you say, kind of it definitely follows the, uh, the logic or the lack of logic found in dreams. Yeah. And, and like you're saying, I mean, actually, it's kind of hard to describe because his movies do, in fact, have plots and they have characters. Uh, so House by the Cemetery, which we just watched is a movie that technically has a story that you could summarize in words. It's more that it just doesn't really feel that way when you're watching it, you know, like you could write out a plot summary and it would more or less make sense. It's just that scene to scene, I at least don't feel the normal levels of narrative logic that you would in a, in a movie where the plot hangs together like it should. Um, and instead, once again, what we get is more like a collection of images, shots, set pieces, and scenes as if billowing out of a dream and then kind of haphazardly strung together along a, a pretty standard kind of uh, horror plot arc. I think one aspect of this or one reason for this is that I, I don't think Fulci was ever the sort of director to let, to let the plot get in the way of a, of a great shot. You right. know, if there was something visually interesting to be done, it seems like he would do it even if it wasn't really helping out the plot all that much. It, not even plot. I mean, just to let any kind of logic or reality get in the mm-hmm. way of a good shot. So, yeah. say, uh, the laws of physics, you know, he, <laughs> he will show some kind of bizarre murder that he maybe came to him in a dream or whatever. And, uh, and it doesn't really matter if this is not how, like, fluids flow in the real world or if this is, you know, it doesn't really – gravity would interfere with what he wants to be showing you. It's, it's, he's just going to show it. Yeah. You know, another thing that's kind of interesting about Fulci's horror movies is that though they are classifiable as horror and they generally have, you know, ghosts and zombies, supernatural horror plot elements, I don't know if they're really intended to be scary. I never really find them scary. They're more like disgusting psychedelic art films. Yeah, this film in particular, um, yeah, it feels like it's trying to be haunting and and supernatural it's it's definitely going out there to be gory but really there's only there's only like one sequence of a child in peril that felt suspenseful i don't know maybe the opening uh kill sequence is a little bit suspenseful even though you don't really have a firm attachment to any of the characters Okay, so what's the elevator pitch on this one? Uh, absurdly grisly murders keep happening at the old Freudstein house. Uh, let's watch what happens when a new family moves in. Uh, don't you mean Oak Manor? Isn't it? Isn't that like, <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the, the realtors keep insisting, don't call it the Freudstein house. 
God, I love the uh, the cutaways to the real estate office. Yeah, we got some, we got a strong real estate agent subplot in this. <laughs> yeah, and the, the real estate office was strangely political compared to you know there was nothing else in the movie like this. But in the real estate office, there are a bunch of flags. There's like an American flag and then some other flags. I don't know what they were. And then there's a uh, might have been state flags or something. And then there's a framed portrait of John F. Kennedy and there's a big bust of an eagle. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why it was so patriotic in there. Interesting. All right. Well, let's go ahead and hear the audio for uh, some some of the trailer audio. Maybe we'll play the whole trailer because this was a fun one, and I'll explain why after you hear it. Stephen, where are you? Please answer me. Steve. In this house, what you don't know will hurt you. It was to be a getaway dream. It's becoming a runaway nightmare. Do you see anything? Some old steps going down. He has been awaiting the arrival of his new guests. One by one, they are disappearing. One by bloody one. No! 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 When you move to this house, before you get locked in, read the fine print. Mommy, hurry! You may have just mortgage. Your life, due to the graphic nature of this film, no one under 18 will be admitted. House by the cemetery. All right. So you might have noticed. Well, that's not a. Maybe that's not our typical movie narrator. That's not. Uh, that's a slightly different voice of God. Doesn't sound like a God at all. Maybe a devil is narrating this. Well, that devil is Brother Theodore, uh, the comedian and character actor that we discussed in the Warhawk Tanzania film, The Devil's Express. You might also know him from the Burbs and the animated adaptations of The Hobbit and The Last Unicorn. He was the voice of uh, of Gollum. In, uh, in the animated Hobbit film. And here he is narrating a trailer. I love it. In The Devil's Express, he was the street preacher who in one scene was giving a sermon by the subway entrance about how all your gods are dead and the rats are screaming. I, w- I was looking around trying to figure out what other trailers he narrated, and I couldn't find evidence of a lot of them. So I don't know if this was like just a very brief gig for him or if I'm missing a lot of trailers here, but... Uh, Oh, I, I, I wish he had done more. I wish he was still around to do film trailers. Like any kind of Oscar bait comes out, I want to hear Brother Theodore narrate it. How would he say featuring the personable Mark Damon? <laughs> oh, it would be, be good. Well, speaking of humans, let's, uh, let's get into the humans <laughs> involved in bringing uh, this, this strange film to life. Uh, first, I guess we'll begin with the director here, uh, the, the key individual we've already uh, we've already brought up already. And that's Lucio Fulci, who lived 1927 through 1996. So we've mentioned him multiple times on Weird House Cinema. So it's 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 ultimately nice to finally discuss him in one of his own films instead of just you know referring to to people who worked with him. 
He's best remembered today for his horror films of the uh, mainly the 1980s era. I guess is the that's the, the the big time for him, uh, and it's w- w- he is without a doubt one of the titans of Italian B cinema from this era. Uh, but all of this really kicked into high gear after 1979's Zombie came out. Uh, we've talked about this one before. Uh, this was a a very prolific period of his career that produced some of his best remembered films. Now this is Zombie with just an I instead of right. an IE. <laughs> Is this the one that was marketed as an unofficial sequel to Dawn of the Dead? Yeah, yeah. It was very much yeah, cashing in on the success of that film. Um, and it is also, we've, we've, you may remember us discussing the, like some of the bonkers scenes in this. Uh, this is another one where the, the, he's, he didn't let the plot get in the way of an interesting scene, such as the one where a, what, a, a shark and a zombie battle each other. Mm-hmm. While a topless scuba diver swims by, uh, yeah. just you know, completely bonkers, and, and definitely stands out in one's memory. But uh, uh, he'd been active for a while prior to, to Zombie. He'd been directing full-length films for twenty years at that point, including some horror films such as 1971's A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, mm-hmm. 1972's Don't Torture a Duckling. Uh, he also did a 1969 Jallo film titled One on Top of the Other. Uh, but he directed a number of different genre films before the 1980s, including westerns, spy thrillers, comedies, and more. Uh, he did an adaptation of Jack London's White Fang. Uh, he also did a, a fantasy film, 1983's Conquest, which is is quite entertaining and weird. Maybe we'll come back to that one. <laughs> Conquest can sometimes be kind of rough because it's it looks like it was filmed through cloth. Like it, there is a just an impenetrable haze through the entire movie. It looks like mm-hmm. there was a... I don't know, gauze over the camera lens or something, how I think they would normally describe it. It's just this gray, hazy look that never ends. But Conquest starts, so it's like a, you know, it's a one of those barbarian movies, sort of a Conan ripoff. Um, yeah. But it's got uh, Jorge Rivera from from Werewolf as the, the Conan character. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it, it has a number of, of, uh, of fun elements in it. I wonder, though, if, if you're... One of the things about these films is that... Um, is that that some of us saw them years ago with less than on less than great uh, formats? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe we even saw them on VHS. So I wonder if the version of Conquest you saw was like one of the was like a more, more recent um, uh, restoration of it, or if it was like or if it was older. Because uh, mm-hmm. the film we're talking about here today was recently restored uh, in 2K. Uh, and and that was the version that that I watched in preparation for this episode, and it really did seem a lot clearer than I remember watching it, uh, you know, like ten or fifteen years ago. Same, yeah. This one uh, it, it looks a lot better now than the version I saw about fifteen years ago. Um, but one more note about uh, one of the movies you mentioned: I've actually seen a lizard in woman skin. That's a Fulci yeah. Jallo movie that is very strange. It involves. I think it's one of the uh, number of these Italian uh, jally that take place in London, if I remember mm. correctly, and it involves uh, it involves like a like a party house. There's like a <laughs> uh, it's like a total. Po- uh, I think the plot is the main character and her husband live in one part uh, apartment, and then right next door there's a total party house, and she has these like dreams and visions about weird stuff going on in there. I think it's kind of there's like I don't know naked people and panthers wandering around and stuff. Uh, now, if, if I'm not mistaken, the title on that one uh, has to do with the success of Dario Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Uh, and if you start looking <laughs> at titles of Jalo films, you'll find that you have The Bird with the Crystal Plumage come out and then various other titles that have a similar structure. You know, mm-hmm. where it'll be like, 
you know, the rhino with a, with a diamond uh, toenail, you know, something like that. Yes. <laughs> that seems to get in on the same trend. Oh, man. There, there's so many Jallo movies with great titles, totally independent. A lot of times I don't even remember which movie the title goes with. There's mm-hmm. one that always sticks in my mind called Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. <laughs> <laughs> Got to make copies of that key. Um, well, anyway, back, back to Fulci. Uh, he, again, he died in 1996, and his, um, his, his output slowed down later in life as, as he wrestled with, with health issues. But his next-to-last film was 1990's A Cat in the Brain, which, which I have not seen. Uh, and really didn't know much about. It. I just kind of assumed it was just another standard, you know, bloody Fulci affair. But um, it apparently stars a fictionalized version of himself. He plays this fictionalized version of himself in the film, seeking the aid of a twisted psychiatrist over his own violent visions. Uh, hmm. So I watched the trailer for it, and it looks it looks amazing. It's a lot of Fulci ranting, um, you know, dubbed into English for the, you know, the version we would watch, uh, where, where he's saying things like, the man was all red, and I wanted to kill him. <laughs> and then you'll, you know, cut to some sort of uh, bizarre sequence. Trying to understand the, uh, the reception history of Fulci is interesting, because he seems like a figure who simultaneously evokes a disgust reaction from people, and I think a lot of people would sort of look down on as a kind of lowbrow pervert of gore. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who made these gross movies full of almost hilarious quantities of gratuitous blood and guts. And yet at the same time, I think there's a lot of film scholarship on Fulci. I, I sense that he enjoys a kind of special aura of artistic respect set apart from most other directors of, of lowbrow B horror movies of this kind. Yeah, I think part of it may be that he's important enough and ultimately impressive enough that he he stands out. Uh, you know, he he kind of emerges out of that world of Italian B cinema, and therefore he might be the most notorious name that someone is familiar with from that world. But mm-hmm. of course, if you if you dig dig a little deeper into Italian B cinema, you find plenty of other more notorious names. Uh, you know, there are a lot more uh, arguably unsavory characters than than Lucio Fulci. I mean, I guess the weird distinction here is that I bet at multiple colleges out there in the world, there are entire courses on Fulci. Like, uh, you know, is <laughs> it that level of uh, subject matter worthy of, of critical analysis, I think? Hmm. Well, let's let's look at some of the other other names involved here. We also have um, uh, Alessa Briganti, uh, who has a story credit. This is an Italian screenwriter who wrote on such films as Zombie, Manhattan Baby, 1990, The Bronx Warriors, A Blade in the Dark, Hands of Steel, which we've discussed on the show before, uh, oh, yeah. and many more. Hands of Steel was the Italian Terminator ripoff that had the the big beefy guy who comes to the desert bar and then ends up in an arm wrestling scene. Yeah, an Arizona movie uh, filmed by Italians and also featuring John Saxon. Oh, yeah, John Saxon. And uh, oh, and that movie was the one uh, where we encountered the worst song of all time because the, the lead actress in it sings, sings that pop single, Teddy Bear. I don't know. I kind of like Teddy Bear. I Teddy <laughs> you like Teddy Bear. Okay. I, I I look back fondly on Teddy Bear. Uh, I don't remember it, though. Uh, I don't remember how it goes. <laughs> oh, let me remind you. No, no, well, af- after, afterwards, afterwards. 
Okay, uh, so the next name uh, worth pointing out, uh, Dardano Sacchetti, uh, who has a screenplay credit, born 1944, Italian screenwriter who worked on the likes, uh, with, with the likes of Lumberto Bava, Lucio Fulci, Enzo G. Castellari, Dario Argento. Uh, his first credit was Argento's The Cat of Nine Tales. He worked with Fulci quite a bit, including some of his most well-known films, uh, some of the ones we've, we've mentioned here already. He worked on Lumberto Bava's Monster Shark and Demons, and uh, he also worked on 1990, The Bronx Warriors. So uh, another important name in Italian B-cinema. And there's another screenplay credit to uh, Giorgio uh, Mariuzzo, who also wrote on the Fulci films The Beyond and Enigma, as well as uh, some others. Now, is House by the Cemetery sometimes considered part of a... uh I'm afraid I'm getting this wrong, but part of a sort of conceptual trio of horror films that Fulci did along with Gates of Hell and uh, and The Beyond. Is that right? Yes. The uh, the so-called Gates of Hell trilogy of, of films. And uh, I'm, I'm personally not sure if this is if this was was dubbed a trilogy by Fulci himself, or if this is something that uh, commentators and fans have come up with, but at any rate, yeah, we have the this uh, these three films, uh, yeah, City of the Living Dead from 1980 and The Beyond and House by the Cemetery, both from 1981, um, and uh, and it is just so happens we have an actor that is in all three of these. It is uh, Catherine McCall or Catriona um, uh, McCall. Uh, and she plays Lucy Boyle, the wife in this picture. Uh, she was born in 1954, British-born ballet dancer turned actor, uh, again, all, in all three of the Gates of Hell films. Uh, she also was in 1980's Hawk the Slayer, which starred Jack Palance, uh, as well <laughs> as John Terry, Patricia Quinn, and, uh, and uh, uh, it looks pretty interesting. I, I, don't, I can't remember if I've seen it or not. I may have seen it. She was also in 1991's Afraid of the Dark, which, saw, which starred uh, James Fox, Paul McGann, and David Thewlis. Right. So I guess if we're getting into the cast, we, we should say that there's a main family in this movie. Mm-hmm. And, and Catherine McCall plays the mother in the, fa- the family. The father is played by this guy named uh, Paolo Malco. Yeah. Plays Dr. Norman Boyle. Um, Malco was born in 1947. An Italian actor who was also in Fulci's New York Ripper was in Sergio Martino's The Scorpion with Two Tails. He was in uh, uh, Castellari's Escape the Bronx, as well as Lumberto Bava's Demons 3, The Ogre. Uh, that came out in 1989. And this one's it's kind of a weird connection here because The Ogre is apparently very similar to this film, to House by the Cemetery, and it is apparently based on Sacchetti's original script for House by the Cemetery. Um, <laughs> so they went, this is according to Lumberto Bava, so uh, basically they're like, well, you know, Fulci did some some slightly different things with the script. Let's go back and we'll just do the script as it was before Fulci did what he did with it. Uh, so I don't know. I, I have not seen Demons Three. I think I've only seen Demons One. So I can't I, speak to it personally. I didn't know there was a Demons Three. Demon, Demons One and Demons Two. Demons One has a bunch of people go to a movie theater and they watch a movie and then demons attack. Demons Two has a bunch of people in an apartment building and then demons attack. Demons Three, I guess it must be a house. So they're they're scaling back. Well, I think it was very much a case of them making a film called The Ogre again, based on this older script. And then they were like, well, maybe this will perform better if we just call it Demons 3. Why right. not? Are people going to complain that <laughs> it doesn't match up all that well with the plot of Demons Demons 1 and 2? I think Demons 2, I don't recall much continuity between them. In fact, 
I even seem to recall that there are actors who are in the first movie playing different characters in the second Demons movie. But anyway, Malco uh, as Dr. Norman Boyle in this, uh, pretty pretty entertaining and has great hair in, in most of the oh. scenes. There's some scenes of him standing on windswept uh, uh, streets uh, in New York City, and, uh, and you're like, wow, it's a good head of hair. Uh, as Vincent Price would say, his hair is luxurious, just <laughs> ab- absolutely wonderful hair. This is hair first casting, to be sure. And, you know, it runs in the family because his his son in the film, uh, his son Bob, also has an impressive head of hair. This is really the star of the film here, is Bob. Yeah. Uh, years ago, when I first saw this movie, the movie in general didn't make all that much of an impression on me, except I remembered Bob. This movie has this weird haunting child in it uh that's that's maybe actually the scariest thing in the movie but also the funniest because he's named bob and characters are constantly yelling out bob yes uh bob uh, an adult's name that is here given to a child uh-huh <laughs> um a child that is also uh the ha- child whose voice is dubbed into english and performed by an adult woman doing a child's voice uh, so, so that adds this extra level of the uncanny to it. And also, uh, the actor playing Bob, uh, Giovanni Frezza, uh, who was born in 1972, was just a, a very cute child, just objectively extremely cute child who just comes off like a, like a cherub, like an actual angelic being that seems to glow on the screen and um, in, in a way that just, just feels unnatural, just unnaturally cute, this kid. The glowing quality also, like you say, it takes after his dad in this film. Luxurious hair, like glowing hair. Yeah, just basically platinum. Now, the the child actor here, um, Giovanni Frezza, pops up in an excellent assortment of Italian genre pictures from this time period, including Manhattan Baby, uh, the, the excellent Warriors of the Wasteland, A Blade in the Dark, and the first Demons movie. Uh, Demons came out in 1985, and that was his last acting role. He grew up, apparently, to become a product development director, and I, I think still works and resides in the United States. Uh, I looked up some, some footage of him from a, I think from a DVD or Blu-ray extra, and I am pleased to, to see that he did not turn into like a terrifying Klaus Kinski-looking adult dude. <laughs> Uh, because there's something about like he's so innocent and um, uh, you know and 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 cute in this film. You're like you can easily imagine it twisted into the grotesque and the cruel uh, <laughs> instead of growing up into what seems like probably a, a normal adult. But you can confirm normal adult. Well, I mean, I don't know the guy, but he, oh, okay. you look at a picture of him, and you're like, oh, that's that's a that's a grown human being, normal that, looking that, adult. Yes, yeah. Okay. I mean, product development sounds normal enough, so. Anyway, <laughs> That could be anything out there. That could be final processing. (laughs) All right. So that is, that is the family. That's our our central trio here. But then you could basically look at the rest of the cast is by dividing them into like ghosts, monsters, and victims. Uh, So the the main ghost is May. Uh, May, the ghost girl played by Sylvia Colatina born 1972 and she's it, the interesting thing and i guess you, this is makes sense because of the the rate at which girls and boys mature but she's actually the same age as the actor playing bob in this hmm. uh, she was also a child actor active only from 1979 to 1984 but with fewer credits 
Uh, she acted in Sergio Martino's The Great Alligator in 1979, uh, a movie that has a story credit by George Eastman. And then she was also in Fulci's Murder Rock, Dancing Death in 1984. I did not know Sergio Martino had an alligator movie. I got to look into yeah. that. Yeah, uh, pinned by George Eastman. Well, Sounds I mean, perfect. Italian crocodilian movies can be quite... Have you ever seen... Um, Oh, I forget the director's name. There, there are a couple of Italian horror films called Killer Crocodile and Killer Crocodile Two. I don't think I've seen those. They're were they're just they're extremely bad, but very funny. <laughs> well, uh, as as for our ghost here, uh, May, I, I feel like uh, um, Caldatina's really good in this. You know, it's hard to judge a a child actor, particularly if they're dubbed, probably by like a different person. But I don't know. She has there's a certain quality to her delivery here where. Uh, I totally buy her sense of like occasional detachment, but also kind of like shocked outrage at the danger that is lurking on the screen. Yeah, she has a lot of like uh, look into the camera, go wide eyed and gasp kind of moments. Yeah. The next character is kind of perplexing because yes. it's, depending on where you are in the film, it's hard to tell where she falls into this, uh, these divisions of victims and ghosts and monsters. Uh, this is the character of Anne the Babysitter, played by uh, Anya Peroni. Uh, she was born in 1957, an Italian actor. She also appeared in Dario Argento's Tenebre and Inferno, in which she apparently plays the mother of tears. Oh. Uh, she's fun in this as a mysterious character, who does a lot of of suspicious staring, mm -hmm. a lot of silent staring, and I have to say this this new two K release, this new two K master of House by the Cemetery, it reveals every follicle in her lush lupine eyebrows. Uh, it's pretty great. I was going to point out those eyebrows. So if Paolo Malco, if he was hair first casting, I think this actress was eyebrow first casting. It's all mm -hmm. about the eyebrows here. Yeah, I mean she has really intense eyes as well, but but luscious eyebrows you've never seen eyebrows like these before um and she a lot of the scenes again getting back to like fulci never letting um the plot get in the way of a, of a good scene he i think a lot of his direction was like yes stare hauntingly into the camera keep doing it okay good that's great now we'll move on to the next scene <laughs> you almost wonder if a, a lot of scenes in this movie could have been done with the actors not even knowing yet what they were going to be looking at it's just we mm -hmm. get a lot of footage of the actor going like oh and then later we figure out what the image is is that they're seeing yeah or sometimes we don't exactly yeah uh one more actor to to, to highlight that we may come back to to one or two more when we get into the plot but we also have this uh, realtor character we have multiple realtor characters but the main one is laura played by the actor dagmar lassender uh, she was born 1943 a czech-born actor who pops up in a lot of italian films and I, I don't know, per, perhaps she's just more memorable because of her name. You know, Dagmar Lassiter, Lassiter tends to, to stand out in the credits of a film. Mm -hmm. uh, she, her credits include Mario Bava's Hatchet for the Honeymoon, Lumberto Bava's Devil Fish, and uh, also Fulci's The Black Cat. Also a picture unrelated to these uh, filmmakers titled Werewolf Woman. <laughs> so she plays a character in this named, uh, well, you said Laura. I Mrs. Gittleson, right? This is the Mrs. Same. Gittleson, yes. Yeah, yeah, Miss mm -hmm. Gittleson. She's, she's, she's the, uh, the real estate agent, and there's a great scene where she is uh, trying to back out of the driveway of the, the titular house, the house by the cemetery, and she, like, drives over a tombstone and just, like, <laughs> swears at it. She's just like, ah, damn tombstones. <laughs> <laughs> she's fun at it. Uh, yeah, yeah, she's fun. 
Uh, all right. Well, let's get to the music because the music on this film is definitely worth highlighting. Uh, this is a th- this is a fun score. Uh, you know, it's a little bit uh, you know, it's it's a little bit a little bit funky. Uh, definitely synthy and uh, apparently highly influential. Um, I, I, I saw it pointed out that the the mu- some of the music that was used or created for. Uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place years later. Uh, it's kind of like, like a direct reference to the score to this film. That makes so much sense. And a lot of what's funny about Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is just slightly tweaking things that are already true about House by the Cemetery. Like uh, mm-hmm. uh, some of the kind of the vibe in the dialogue scenes with these long pauses between lines and awkward yep. staring. Yep, absolutely. In fact, I, I even thought of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, and there's one part in the movie where um, where Paolo starts listening to a tape by the old yep, doctor yep. that starts talking about blood, 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 and I wanted to complete it with, and bits of and sick. And bits of sick, yeah, I, I had the same thought. <laughs> that, that's a great sequence, too, by the way, yeah, listening yeah. to that. And, and aren't we getting, we're presented with visuals of blood flowing over a tombstone? Yes, yes, yep. yeah. All right, so the, the individuals responsible for this music, primarily Walter Rizzotti. Um, I'm not sure when this Italian composer with, was born or if he's still with us. I couldn't find any dates on him, but he seems to have been primarily active from 1966 through 1993. His notable scores include this one, uh, 1990, The Bronx Warriors, as well as some various action films. I think this is the, the main standout. Uh, but you also have Alexander Blanksteiner on this with an additional music credit. You might remember him as the guy who gave us that fabulously funky disco score for Cannibal Apocalypse. Mm. Uh, he has composition credit on five of the score's tracks. So it all comes together, uh, again, into just a very fun score that is a, you know, occasionally uh, definitely gets into this kind of cheesy groove that that only works with this film, uh, but I think is overall pretty excellent uh, and has some wonderful moments of horror synth working. I thought we might have a, a taste of it right here. Yes, I love the synth pipe organs, and I also, at a couple of points, I was hearing a plinking walk down that reminds me of the melody from Bananarama's Cruel Summer. Yeah, I think I know which part you're talking about. I need to go back and listen to that, though. And speaking of going back and listening to it, I should point out that um, that there have been some excellent re-releases of this score. Uh, I don't, I can't really speak to its digital availability on streaming sites, but you've had some fabulous vinyl editions put out by both Death Waltz uh, Records, which you know excels at this sort of thing, as well as Burning Witch Records. So if you're if you're into the into the vinyl uh, and you're into scores like this, definitely check those out. So, the, oh wait, those were the humans, but there's also one non-human credit I need to give, and that's the house itself. This is one of those those fabulous movies where we have a central haunted house or haunted location, and that location actually exists in the real world, and you can you can technically go and see it. Um, I mean, you know, obey obey local laws as far as approaching it, but um, <laughs> the house here is uh, is the the Freudstein house is actually the Bailey Ellis house located on the Ellis estate in the coastal Massachusetts town of, um, let's see, I'm, not, I'm sure I'm going to butcher the, the, the name of this, uh, Skituat? 
Scituate? I have no idea. S C I T U A T E. Situate? Scituate? I don't know. Yeah. At any rate, it's about 30 miles southeast of Boston. And according to Atlas Obscura, it's currently owned by the Scituate Arts Association. And if you go to their website, uh, you can see recent photos of it. Um, the website states, quote, The Ellis House is a unique Gothic Romanesque mansion and home to the SAA's indoor classes and workshops. It also provides studio space for half a dozen artists. So, hey, oh, oh. go there, sign up to create your own entry for the night gallery. Um, uh, this, uh, yeah, this house is still standing and there, and there's, there's still wonderfully creative things going on inside it. I will drop everything in my life and go to Massachusetts to become part of Dr. Freudstein's art collective. <laughs> uh, and by the way, this house was also used in Umberto Lindsay's ghost house. So mm. you get to double dip uh, by visiting this place. It's a really good house, I, I will say. Yeah, it's, it's it's a handsome house, and they they fix it up nicely for the film because they're just uh, they're they're just uh, uh, headstones everywhere, just uh, all through the yard, and then also in the surrounding woods. All right, now here's the part of the episode where we would normally start getting into a full plot breakdown. I don't know if that's quite the terminology to use here. I think what <laughs> happens is we are going to be able to describe a bunch of scenes that happen in the movie, but I don't know if we can really explain the plot. Right. I mean, I still have, there's still things I do not understand. And I've, I've, I've seen this film more than I've seen some truly, you know, um, you know, subjectively great works of art. Um, <laughs> I've also, especially in this last viewing, I really tried to understand everything. You know, it was like I was going to be quizzed on it. <laughs> uh, can I really speak to what's happening in this movie? And I, I really can't explain some of the choices and elements here, uh, though I, I will try. We will at least uh, try to describe a number of the, the, the dioramas that, that Fulci creates in the shoebox of this film. Yes. Uh, so from the very opening I got to say, especially with this restoration, it looks great. The house is beautifully framed on the opening shot with the, you know, it's it's got the dark in the background with tombstones and dead limbs in the foreground. I assume I could, uh, I can't remember if you mentioned this a minute ago. Is there actually a cemetery by the house or were the tombstones added for the film? I think the tombstones were added for the film. Um, hmm. uh, I'm not 100% clear on that, but, um, but I didn't, I didn't see anybody pointing out, uh, you know, there being an actual cemetery surrounding this house. Okay. Well, we see it in the opening frame like this, this, this beautiful old house uh, with the darkness behind it and the tombstones and the dead trees with bare limbs in the foreground. And this of course is setting up a classic horror movie style opening in which some people are in a place they're not supposed to be. And they're probably about to meet an ill end. Right. It's, it's ultimately a familiar scene. I feel like I've seen other in other films. A woman is dressing, and then she starts looking around the house for her boyfriend, assuming he's pranking her by suddenly disappearing. Uh, and then, you know, so she, she wanders around being like, oh, uh, what, what is his name? Is it Mike? Steve. It's Steve. Steve. She's like, Steve, oh, Steve, are you there? <laughs> Steve, Steve, stop kidding around, Steve. And then, of course, what happens? She discovers Steve. Steve is dead. Uh, he's been nailed to the backside of a door with a pair of surgical scissors, and his brain has been surgically or, or through blunt trauma exposed. Um, and then an unseen killer stabs her through the back of the head with a kitchen knife so that the blade, the end of the blade emerges out of her mouth. And then she falls to the floor dead, 
and then a pair of, mon- well, a pair of hands, one of which appears human and one of which appears to be a monster hand, drags her away into the cellar. So a standard B-horror opening, but there's a lot stylistically about it that's just very elegant and, and very much a cut above what you would see in movies like this normally. So uh, one thing I wanted to draw attention to is a, a wonderful shot where uh, while she is wandering around calling out to Steve, saying like, Steve, are you trying to scare me? I don't think it's funny. But uh, she's coming down a hallway that is lit from behind. And in the foreground, we are looking through the gaps in an iron spiral staircase that's just covered in cobwebs. And it's a gorgeous shot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a great shot of this seemingly endless cellar in this yeah. uh, this house. I mean, it's supposed to be a haunted house. So it makes sense that maybe the the seller doesn't obey the laws of of, uh, of of reality and space and time. Uh, but yeah, it seems enormous and it seems like there are corners of it that haven't been explored in like a century and a half. Uh, I, I ultimately love the unreality of this cellar. But then after the opening murders, you get some music, of course, the, this electronic organ fugue. You get the mm-hmm. title. It says House by the Cemetery. Uh, and then there's an interesting compositional shift coming up. So you see the same house and a girl standing in the window looking out, making kind of a, a scary screaming face, which then crossfades to a black and white photograph hanging on a wall of that house with the girl looking out the window with the screaming face. Then you see a title that says New York pulls back. The wall is in a modern apartment, modern at the time the film was made. And then sitting there staring at the photo is a profoundly uncanny blonde child. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Bob. I want to come back to that ghost girl for a second because, yes, she's haunting in the photo. But the face she's making, it could be interpreted as fear, but it's also the kind of face that a child like this would make when somebody does a cannonball into a swimming pool in a Kool-Aid commercial. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Whoa. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's radical. And it is radical. But yes, now we meet Bob. Um, and, and we say, we, we meet the, the whole family. Yeah, there's Dr. Norman Boyle. There's his wife, Lucy Boyle. There is adorable Bob, who uh, we've, we've already described, disturbingly cherubic and speaks in the dubbed voice of an adult woman doing a kid's voice. It's <laughs> so uncanny. Yeah. And, and there's yeah, a, a lot of scenes, too, of, of Bob playing just way too diligently with his toys. I'm yes. like, like, who has ever given a remote control car to a child and seen them and get that, this much usage out of it? Uh, it it's, it's really not fair. Well, this movie also, I'm not sure if it understands that remote control cars don't work in the woods where the ground is covered <laughs> in leaves and is not flat. Yeah. Oh, but uh, so here's a question I have. Mm-hmm. Is Bob like Danny Torrance? Like, is he psychic or is is just the ghost girl picking him as a regular non-psychic person to send messages to? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, May only speaks to Bob, right? Bob mm-hmm. seems to be the only one who can see her. So it's either she can speak to him because he's a child or he's a special child. But I, I, ha- I have a suspicion that the idea is that Children are weird and can see ghosts. Okay, okay. So it's it's not him in particular. He's just a child, and the child the child's mind is open to the spirit world in a way that the adult's mind is closed. I guess so, but ultimately okay. that's just how I choose to interpret it. And there's, <laughs> I'm not sure where Fulci actually stood on this. 
Well, w- immediately what happens here is that uh, Lucy, the mother, comes in and is like, hey, Bob. And Bob's like, well, I'm hearing voices talking to me out of this photograph. And she's just like, oh, ha ha. Um, <laughs> and he's like, mommy, why does that girl in the photograph keep telling us we shouldn't go to the house? And the mom uh, can't see the girl in the window in the photo. So she just kind of shrugs it off. Mm. But then we see a kind of alternate reality where May, the ghost girl, and I guess her mom are standing yep. in the woods somewhere. I guess they are standing among the tombstones in the cemetery outside the house, and we're told that this is in New Whitby, Boston. Yeah, yeah. This this film, most of these scenes were were filmed in Massachusetts, take place in Massachusetts, and this is ultimately a Massachusetts film. Maybe our first. I'm not sure if we've. Uh, I, I can't remember if any of the, the previous films we've we've watched have been set or filmed there. I believe this film is sort of trying to tap into some miskatonic magic. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, But that doesn't mean we don't have a brief stop over in New York City. Uh, On the streets of New York, Dr. Norman Boyle is seen chatting with uh, Professor Mueller, who is played by the director, Lucio Fulci. And they're discussing Boyle's research. Uh, He is about to move his entire family out of the city into rural Massachusetts so that he can continue the suicide research that his colleague, Dr. Peterson, was doing right before said colleague murdered his mistress and committed suicide himself. Now, what sort of research could this possibly have been? What breakthroughs was he making? I have no idea. (laughs) And there's not a lot of of, uh, there are not really any answers to be found in the film. What a setup. And yeah, this scene on the sidewalk is hilarious. And I think maybe it's supposed to be. I I don't think this is unintentional because uh, Fulci is talking to this lead actor here with, you know, the glorious head of hair. And Fulci's, uh, I guess, playing playing an older colleague who's got this ridiculous, huge red bow tie and Mm -hmm. these thick glasses. And uh, and as he's talking to to Paolo here uh, to to what's it, Norman Boyle, he says, um, and there he was researching suicide. Times we have to live in. Taxi. And he just sails <laughs> a taxi, hops in, and takes off. That's just that's just New York living. Yeah, you got to You got to keep moving, otherwise the Manhattan babies will catch up with you. So next, the family is driving out to the house, and this is the, one of the parts where I heard that uh, that that walk down melody that sounds like a Muzak version of cruel summer. Uh, but this is also at the part where the dad says the dad is talking about how, if it weren't for so-and-so, I don't remember who he's talking about. Uh, we wouldn't have a house to live in where we're going. We'd have to live in a tent and Bob yells. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> well, that's pretty authentic. That's pretty good. There's a scene that comes up in a minute here. That is great. That has may the ghost girl, um, mm-hmm. not, uh, who, by the way, doesn't look like a good, she just looks like a normal person, just like a kid. Yeah. Not like, uh, you know, translucent or anything. So it's just like a kid is out on a street. I think this is supposed to be in Boston or this town outside of Boston that they're going to. And she is staring into the window of a storefront that has mannequins dressed up in, I guess, the clothes the store is selling. And so one of these mannequins looks like a very evil Denise Richards type face. And uh, and is wearing one of the what do you call those frilly white collars? Kind of like doilies. Yeah, kind of like a like a like a witch costume, I guess. It looks yeah, a little witchy. sort of. But then it's like May hallucinates the the mannequin getting decapitated and it bleeds everywhere. So this is a mannequin, but it's full of blood and organs and stuff. The head falls off and it's just a splatter for a moment. 
and then somehow this leads into the meeting of May and Bob, which is very funny as well. Like Bob shows up in town, his parents go in to talk to the realtors and he's just sitting in the car, I think playing with the toy. And then suddenly they're like psychic mind melding. Yeah. Like she's a block or two away and they're just chatting with each other. Like they're right next to each other through their, their brains. Oh, oh, and somehow this sequence ends with Bob like sitting in a park cradling this gigantic, horrible doll. Yeah. This giant garbage doll that uh, that he's been given, I guess, by May. He's like, Mom, we're taking this home, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, load it up. <laughs> load up your garbage doll. <laughs> but so from here, we get the family moving into the new house. And there's a lot of great photography. Uh, we get to see the, them interacting with the realtors. This is where there's that funny scene where uh, Ms. Gittleson drives over a tombstone and then yells mm-hmm. at it. Um <laughs> And uh, Lucy, the mother, has this strange freak out about the doll that Bob found. It's like, but it's after they get back to the house. So I didn't really understand that. He brings this disgusting doll home (laughs) and then it's sitting there in the house and she sees it and she's like, does a whip (laughs) zoom on her eyes. This movie loves whip zooms, by the way. Did you notice that? Uh, Now that you pointed out, yeah, there's a lot of of whip zooming going on. Sometimes in, in situations where it wouldn't seem to make total sense, like... It will happen in cases where somebody's having a horrible vision, but it also sometimes just happens in the middle of a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is the point in the film where we we introduce uh, one of my favorite characters, and we've already talked a little bit about her, uh, the actor playing her, but but Anne, Anne the babysitter with the magnificent eyebrows shows up, and apparently we're supposed to connect her to the mannequin that we saw. The mannequin that's head fell off in the window is supposed to look like this actor, yeah. even though uh, she really doesn't. And I got more caught up on the fact that she looks like a, a, a particular uh, former first lady of the United States. Um, <laughs> God, but it's supposed of, yeah. to be Anne. It's supposed to be Anne, apparently. <laughs> I didn't notice that, but yeah, you're right. Uh, but yeah, well, I was thinking Denise Richards, but either way, yeah, it, it doesn't exactly look like Anne. I guess it has long brown hair and in intense mm-hmm. eyebrows. So there you go. But anyway, when Anne shows up, she's just a lady in their house suddenly. They're unpacking or something, and suddenly a person's there, and they're all like, huh? And uh, she says, Miss Gittleman sent me. I'm Anne, the babysitter. And then just yeah, zoom, this, whip, zoom, zoom, cut, zoom. So this is just instantly just so insane because for, yeah. I mean, in what universe does a realtor provide your babysitter? Yeah. In which case does a babysitter just sort of appear without, you know, there are no credentials. Like the parents weren't involved in this at all. They just suddenly, they have this strange woman in their house babysitting for them. And then yeah. various other questions come up regarding Anne and this whole babysitting arrangement and her relationship with any other entity in the film. It's bonkers. From moment one, Anne appears to be up to no good. Like the, mm-hmm. So from here, the, they, the family starts going about their business. And Norman is, I think, trying to discover what the scholar who lived in this house before him was up to, like what he had found out and what, what had led him to do these horrible things. And meanwhile, there's like a scene where Lucy is walking around at night, uh, having heard strange sounds in the house. And she just like comes up on Anne, who is trying to pry her way into the boarded up basement with a shovel and (laughs) gives her gives her the most evil just hyena eyes. So Anne lives in the house with them, right? She's like a living babysitter. Like basically she's a nanny. 
even though they, they don't really use the, the word. That's, that's apparently what they mean, nanny. But, but then at the same time, like the relationship is so weird. There's a point later on where Anne disappears from the film for good, and the mom, mom comes home finds that Anne is no, no, no longer around and is just Bob by himself. And she just dismisses it. She's like, oh, I guess Anne went home to see her parents. Yeah. <laughs> there's like, there's no communication with the babysitter slash nanny. It's just like, oh, well, she's done. She wandered off. That's fine. That's what babysitters do. That is the end of Anne, the, the au pair. And yet there's still more questions about Anne we'll get to <laughs> as we proceed. So where is it after this, we follow Norman for a bit because he's trying to to figure out what was going on with Dr. Peterson's research. And he goes to some place as a library. I guess it's supposed to be a unit university. Like is this Miskatonic university or something? Yeah. I think we're getting kind of that kind of vibe. You know, this yeah. is the, this is the Arkham horror uh, section of the, the movie where he's going and researching the, uh, the strange research of his predecessor. Yeah. And so he meets a scholar there who, uh, a scholar who's got like a this awesome looking beard, uh, and the scholar is like, "You've been here before with your daughter." And Norman is like, uh, "Nope, I've never been here before, and I don't have a daughter." And does that ever come up again? I don't recall that connecting to anything. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't really understand that. Like, where they at first, I was like, they just mistook Bob for a girl, which you know, it's the, the misgendering of children happens all the time. Sure, uh, you know, with with uh, when you're when you're a parent or when you're you're talking to parents. So I thought, well, maybe that's it. But no, but it I don't seems, think so. I, I, yeah. I, he'd never been there. But then who was it? I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> uh, but we get to meet the librarian in this sequence, yeah. right? Uh, the librarian was a, was a lot of fun. It's a small role, but it's played by this guy, Jim uh, oh. Paolo Saccarola, uh, Saccarola uh, perhaps, playing the, the librarian. Uh, yeah, and he's, uh, I really like this guy. He has some real Ronald Lacey energy. You know, he's got Ooh. kind of a, um, uh, you know, a devious baby face. Yes, yes, yes. He reminds me a little bit of Dylan Baker, you know, the actor. Mm, yeah, yeah. But either way, he he's a stupendous baby-faced Renfield boiling over with nervous laughter. I loved his scenes. Yeah, I, I, and he, he ultimately doesn't play a particularly devious character. He doesn't, you know, this is not a character that turns out later to be a ghost or a cult member or anything no. weird like that. He just is a, this, this slightly <laughs> suspicious librarian, and, and it's uh, he's a fun screen presence. Apparently shows up in a number of, number of other uh, uh, Italian B-movies of this, uh, this time period. Yeah, just a bookish weirdo. There's also an mm-hmm. awesome scene later on in the movie where he's wearing a green sweater that looks like it's made of felt. So he comes in, he's like a walking pool table. I loved it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he, and he's he, and he's actually got some fun dialogue in that part because it's it's mm-hmm. like he's he's coming off a little passive aggressive. He's like, I was just checking on the the room because the the the, the library is closed on Sundays, and and meanwhile our hero's like, I'm here to research. <laughs> yeah. Have you like, seen you my hair? In? Do you know who I am? <laughs> Look how handsome I am. How dare you question my presence here? There's a there's a scene somewhere after this that's really funny where Bob is out in the woods with his remote control race car. Again, like you can't mm-hmm. really play with a remote control car in the woods. Um, and he, he's wandering around and he finds a tombstone for somebody named Mary Freudstein. And then he immediately has this incomprehensible encounter with the ghost girl, May, where May says, she says a line like, it's only, it's all a lie. She's not really buried there. Oh, I know. She's not really buried there. Mm. I I don't know what that means. Yeah, uh, I don't know either because she's, she's a ghost, but I guess I don't know where she's buried if she's not buried here. 
So this is all while Norman in his library is is learning about the sort of unsavory history of a Dr. Jacob Freudstein, who I think at one point lived in the house that they're staying in now. So this is not the guy who was there before them, but the guy who was there before that guy. Right. And this is when we find out that this isn't just a house by the cemetery. It is perhaps a house on the cemetery, or more specifically, the cemetery is also inside the house. The cemetery is coming from inside the house. Mm -hmm. And the scene that, that sets that up, by the way, begins with an absolutely gorgeous framing. So, like, this house has these stained glass windows with these, uh, like, green and yellow and purple flower shapes that are uh, that are framed against the this blue stained glass. It's just wonderful. Uh, and and this is the framing for when Lucy's like washing the floor and she pulls a, aside a rug and discovers under the rug, there's just a, a tomb. There's like a gravestone inside the house. And we'll, we'll later find out um, that in kind of Scooby-Doo fashion, this tombstone is also a secret door, like a trap door that uh, gives you entryway into the cellar. Yeah, right. and there, in addition to the the door that nobody can open yet, that clearly goes to the cellar. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, like in this scene, there's a bunch of grunts and jostling and whatnot coming from the basement. Mm-hmm. So it sort of indicates the the trap door thing. Yeah, there are a lot of haunted sounds in this house. Like there's creaking, uh, there's progressively grunting, and also like ghost baby weeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot a lot going on uh, in this house uh, from an auditory uh, point of view here. So uh, Lucy is not happy about this, and she screams. But eventually, she and uh, and Norman are discussing it, and Lucy's like, "Wow, it's weird that there's a tomb inside the house." And Norman says, "It's just something you'll have to get used to. This ain't New York." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's implied like this is just what they do out here. Yeah, um, and and I remember thinking, "Is it? Is this ever a thing?" I don't think I've ever visited a historic home where they're like, "And now you'll notice there's a gravestone in the middle of the house." Uh, this is what they did. I'm open-minded, but I'm a little doubtful on that. I don't know. Listeners yeah. write in. Do houses in New England all have bodies buried in the floors? <laughs> oh, and another thing, by the way, that was right in the middle of the sequence. There's a part where uh, Norman is standing in the kitchen, and it's one of those things where I think we've talked about how the, a great thing with some of these Italian horror directors is they really know how to put – a colorful item or two in the middle of an otherwise color drab shot to just really make it pop and add some contrast. Mm -hmm. And in one of these shots, the colorful item in the foreground is this big red box of something called fiddle faddle. It looks like it's a, I don't know. It looks like Cracker Jacks or something. It might be caramel popcorn. Yeah. Watching this scene, I, I also I thought back to our recent viewing of, of Mario Bava's Black Sabbath and mm-hmm. was thinking about, yeah, how he'll put just some sort of item, it doesn't even matter what it is, in the center and the color will just suck you in. This doesn't quite pull that off, but you can see that Fulci was going to the, for the same sort of effect. Uh, but I guess this is all leading up to one of the finest sequences in the entire film, which is the bat scene. Uh, oh, God. The bat scene is so good. And it comes from the first time the family actually decides to venture into the basement. So earlier, Anne was trying to pry her way into the basement in the middle of the night. Nobody ever explained that. I don't know why. 
she doesn't explain why. I, I don't think the movie addresses why she was trying to pry in. Um, but if if it does, that I missed it. But the, eventually, the whole family goes in, and there's this great scene of um, of Norman, the dad, trying to unlock the door to the basement by prying at the key with the sharp edge of a kitchen knife. So he's got a kitchen yes. knife like wedged in it, blade out, like blade poking into the metal of the key, and just twisting and twist, wrenching it over to turn the lock. One of several scenes where people are open it, trying to open or are opening doors using knives in the most unsafe manner possible. Yeah. <laughs> in a way, it's very effective because you can't help but cringe watching them do this. Fulci actually scenes from this movie could be used as a video version of the Don't Do What Donnie Don't Does book about knife safety. Yeah, it's basically it's shake hands with danger, but generally. But but I guess the thing is you keep expecting that knife to slip and there to be a real bloody gore effect, and then there's not. Um, uh, but then what happens instead is, yeah, they open the door successfully with their knife, and then they start heading down there to check it out. I think Dad's in front, right, with the, the flashlight and all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in swoops the bat. The bat. And this is a great scene because the bat latches onto Norman's hand, and then he still has a knife, so he stabs it like a million times, <laughs> like uh, backing up uh, out of the cellar into the mm-hmm. kitchen, just still stabbing at this bat that's affixed to his hand, producing about six bats worth of blood in the process, and just getting it everywhere. Yeah, flinging bat blood on everyone in the room, and it's just stuck <laughs> on his hand like a leech. <laughs> like it's just, yep. all, you can't pull it off, and he's just stabbing and stabbing and getting blood on his whole family. And it's absolutely ludicrous. This the scene is everything. Um, by the way, I got to say it compares quite favorably uh, to another bat attack film from an Italian horror movie. Do you remember the bat scene in Suspiria? I do not. Uh, very funny, but underwhelming compared to this one. So wh- whereas this bat attack is just the 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 paragon of excess. The bad attack in Suspiria is where Jessica Harper is in her room at the school and suddenly she gets uh, creeped out by it's just like a ball of black socks with wings. It's uh, not a good bat. One to ten on the bat believability scale. What do you give the Suspiria bat? The Suspiria bat would be like a two or a three. This Mm -hmm. one, I don't know if believability is the word, but it so overwhelms the senses that one need not believe either way. It's just there. It's just in you. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to mark you down for a five. Okay. But uh, the other thing is this scene reminded me of the the Simpsons where um, Homer gets his uh, hand stuck in the toaster. Yes. And still has his (laughs) hand stuck in the toaster. Dad, it's in there again. (laughs) All right, so eventually, eventually the bat is vanquished. And at that point, I think everybody's had enough of the, the, the cellar, and they have agreed not to go back in there for the time being. Well, and we're to understand that after the scene, the family expresses their desire to leave the house because the next That's thing right. is at the real estate office, you've got the realtors, the two realtors sitting there, and they're just talking about how, oh, yeah, everybody always wants out of this house. Why won't people just stay in the house? And this is great because we don't get enough scenes of realtors talking to realtors in, uh-huh. in our movies, particularly in our haunted house films. You know, maybe the, 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 the owners and the renters are talking with the realtor, but, uh, but, but not, not this kind of inside realtor talk. You get so one of the realtors is the one we've already met, uh, Miss uh, Gittle, Gittleson, Gittleston. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, this is the one played by Dagmar. 
Yes, and then the other one is this guy who I don't know if he has a name, but he 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 has uh, a powerful aura of sleaze. Yes, and then uh, so after this, I don't know if this has any causal relationship to anything else in the movie, but we get at least one scene of like the ghost people in their own environment, like May and her mom just in a house hanging out and may is depicted as dwelling within a gin pop of a supermax prison for dolls. It's, you know, just dolls everywhere crammed in. Uh, you imagine that the dolls are like, you know, shoving each other for more personal space. And, uh, and they have some kind of conversation here in the house. And I think this is implied to be the same house, but like, not, not in a different reality version of the house. Yeah, and I'm not sure where to fall on this. Like this room, and also to a large extent the cellar, are these places that are that physically exist and are closed off from the rest of the house, like the main, I presume, rental house. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I forget if they were supposed to have purchased this house, or surely they're renting. You don't, you don't just buy a haunted house; you want to rent. Um, but I don't know if these are rooms that physically exist or if they are essentially ghost rooms and ghost domains. And ultimately the house by the cemetery is kind of like the, the house of leaves and uh, doesn't obey, you know, the, the typical laws of time and space. Mm, that's a nice comparison. Except I would say house of leaves is somehow less confusing than house by the cemetery. <laughs> So from here, the movie kind of ramps up more into into attack mode. Uh, so mm-hmm. multiple characters are, are going to get slaughtered by the monster here. Uh, there's a scene where the real estate agent, Miss Gittleson, just kind of pops into the house to wander around. Uh, there's some beautiful, eerie shots of the house, like the, that same uh, window, the Bay of Windows with the, yes. the stained glass and all that. And the, there are these mm-hmm. lamps, these globe-shaped lamps beside them. It's wonderful, uh, wonderful composition. But so this lady's wandering through the house and she gets attacked by the tomb, like the stone slab over the tomb that uh, Lucy discovered there. It bites her leg, essentially. Uh, and then she is killed by the monster hand guy from the beginning of the movie. And that's that's the doctor. That's Dr. Freudstein, who will we, we will increasingly see a lot more of. Right. Well, we don't see him. It's still just his hands here. Like mm-hmm. That's the big reveal at the end of the movie is getting to see his full form. Here you just get hands, and then this lady gets murdered in a, in a scene of an absolutely ridiculous excess of blood. Yeah, this is a, I think, a, she, he stabs her with a poker multiple times. Yeah. So sometime around this point in the movie, also Norman discovers the, the cassette tapes made by his the uh, predecessor by the previous scholar who was working in this house um, mm-hmm. and this guy Peterson and Peterson's recording himself talking into a tape recorder about the, the Freudstein house. He seems to be losing his mind. He says the house, it draws me like an infernal magnet. How many have wandered into the waiting spider web? The smell of the rooms terrifies me. And then eventually we get to him saying blood, 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 <laughs> Which, of course, it will be irresistible to all the Garth Marenghi fans out there. Yes. Uh, but but then, I, then the scenes right after that are really full of stop and shop. So, like, the, the you know, mom comes home with the grocery bag that has had the stop and shop logo on them. Honest values mm-hmm. are what stop and shop is all about. And then there's stop and shop brand cartons of milk everywhere. Yep, yep. Adding that, uh, you know, some level of that red Mario Bava pop to the background. Yeah. 
Uh, but but here characters really start going down in the basement. Uh, so like Anne's going to go down in the basement. Bob's going to go down in the basement. Uh, and and it and it, this this is third act territory here. Yeah. So um, so first of all, I want so one of the the people that goes down into the basement is Anne. And this is ultimately a sequence that really raises a lot, even more questions for me because after the so after the the real estate lady is again just brutally murdered in the upper portion of the house and then dragged into the into the cellar, it appears that Anne has spent quite a bit of time cleaning up after this murder. Like yeah. the uh, mom comes back. Apparently, they went out to a restaurant last night. Uh, they had invited Anne, uh, but Anne was going to go quote unquote visit her parents. Uh, which mm-hmm. apparently means clean up after the murderous creature slash ghost slash whatever that lives in the cellar. And then and then she just kind of avo- avoids the topic about what she's doing. But she's like clearly cleaning up all this blood. So it's like, is Anne working for the presence in the basement? Is she a thrall of the forces in this house? What is it? Uh, it's not explained. And then when Anne goes looking for Bob, wanders into the basement, uh, the force brutally murders her, like chops her head off with a knife. Uh, and uh, and so it's like, well, what was that all about then? What, did she work for the, the thing in the basement? Did she work for some other force? Like, what is the arrangement here? I have no idea. Yeah, I could not understand it all. It, at first, it seems like she is working for the monster, and then she's surprised when she encounters it. And so yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. She'll Why was she cleaning up the blood? Yeah. Yeah, she died like she lived, a complete mystery. Um, okay, but, but when Bob's in the basement, then it, the, this is where the cellar really takes on this uh, this strange otherworldly dimension because there are these sounds and you know creep and also creepy sights. We keep seeing these big beast eyes yeah. glowing in the dark that remind me of the the eyes of the crate dweller from Stephen King's Creep Show, and. It's easy to think when you first see them, oh, these must be the eyes of the presence in the basement. These are the eyes of Dr. Freudstein. But as we'll explain, when we finally see Dr. Freudstein, he does not have these eyes. Uh, No. So what what was this? Is this another presence? Is this another like, is this like, I have so many questions about the the whole arrangement here with ghosts and potentially demonic presences and and also, uh, you know, artificially uh, living uh, undead creatures. Uh, It uh, it's really out there. I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, uh, same here. I, just these these weird glowing yellow and red cat-like eyes in the dark that don't correspond to any creature or monster we see later in the film. But one of the key sequences is this scene yeah, where, where Bob is shut into the closet. Whatever's in the basement is able to close the door at will and trap people who wander down. Bob is stuck in the basement. Mom's trying to free him from the other side, and something's coming up the stairs to get him. It, of course, is the doctor uh, Dr. Freudstein. Now we don't, I think we, this part, we don't fully see his face yet. The, that reveal mm-hmm. is still coming, but, uh, one of the funniest parts again is that, uh, Lucy is trying to get in to help Bob and she's literally prying at the basement door with a kitchen knife. So it's just the knife yeah. in the door, in the door jam, just prying. Uh, and then that doesn't work. And then I think, uh, this is when Norman comes home and he attacks the door with a hatchet to try to get in and save Bob. There again was a very funny moment where he he goes, 
keep away from the door and bob goes yep i will and uh and then here comes the monster hand and holds bob's head against the door while dad's trying to hack through it with the with the with the with the hatchet yes it's pretty it's pretty great i mean it's terrifying it's a it's really an ingenious scene i don't think i've ever seen anything quite like this and the dad accidentally chops the monster's arm off with the hatchet Mm mm-hmm um, then also keeps hacking at the door in a very inefficient way, like hitting the door in completely different places, like in the middle and then at the side. Yeah. And, and finally we do get to see our monster, our Dr. Freudstein in full and, oh man, I've, I've long loved this monster design. So he is uh, apparently a 150 year old surgeon, uh, with a, who really liked illegal surgeries. Uh, he's beat death through some mix of butchery and cell theft and uh, and when I say beat death, you know it's um it, it, it's arguable like how close the score was here uh, because his body is just this desiccated husk of scars and rot with seemingly new parts added as needed. I think that's the reason he has one monster arm and one uh, seemingly normal arm. Mm-hmm. Um, he's clearly lost uh, all of his humanity. And now just exists as this thing that lures people into the cellar so he can cut them to ribbons and, you know, maybe harvest some of their cells or their body parts. He, he boasts amazing strength to match his brutality. He can't speak uh, or doesn't seem to. He seems to only emit guttural sounds. And we don't know if this is due to his state of mind, like is his brain just rotting in there? Or is it just because he doesn't have, you know, functional speech apparatus anymore? He also may have supernatural powers, like he may be the one that's opening and closing that door, uh, or he's aided by the ghosts of his family, or I, I was trying to figure out, well, maybe it has something to do with those those beast eyes in the cellar. Maybe like he somehow horcruxed himself, and so he exists mm. both as a uh, an incorporeal... Uh, like presence in the cellar, but then also this, this, uh, this, this doomed, uh, you know, corporeal rotting creature. It's, uh, it, it's, it's wonderful. Like the, the suit looks really good. He, you can basically smell him. Oh yeah. Yeah. The design of the monster is absolutely fabulous. The, especially the head where his, his head is, it's almost like a wax helmet of a kind, yeah. Uh, with these deeply recessed eye sockets that don't appear to have eyes in them and uh and no mouth. Yeah, the mouth part is just kind of smoothed over and is just a, this vertical scar now. It's excellent. Yeah, there's kind of a body's exhibit sensibility to his uh his his head like he's mm-hmm. been plasticized. Oh, and then when dad dad gets in there and um, and stabs him, and when dad stabs him, another one of the most memorable scenes in the film is what comes out is not not blood, but this just kind of rotted sludge filled with squirming maggots. I mean, just packed with maggots and not mealworms, as is sometimes the case. Sometimes you have mealworms standing in for maggots, but these, this is the real deal. This is just a big maggoty sludge that starts dripping out of his body. Yeah, a tremendously gross and and in some ways beautiful monster design. Now, here are the big spoilers. What happens when the family, the, the final three, go up against Dr. Freudstein? Well, it, it doesn't go so well. Um, Dad, you know, gets in there and gets some stabbing in on Dr. Freudstein, but then Dr. Freudstein rips Dad's throat out in a very grisly sequence. 
And then Mom and Bob are, are going up these stairs to that tombstone trap door and trying to force it open so that they can escape. And Freudstein ends up grabbing Mom and like dragging her down the stairs, bonking her head on each rung. And then, and I think this must have been a, I don't know if this was a cut scene, but like the next scene you see is like her head has been dashed to pieces on the concrete floor. And then the creature's coming back up. Freudstein's coming back up to get Bob. And Bob manages to squeeze his way out and is pulled to safety by May, the ghost girl. Yeah, so I was confused about the ending. Does Bob escape the monster by becoming a ghost? I don't know. Uh, does does Bob? Does this mean Bob dies, or Bob crosses over, or has Bob been saved in the physical world by May? I'm not yeah, sure. I, I really don't. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's intentionally haunting and vague, and uh, and and Fulci does nothing to clear it up by having the the final shot in the film be this uh, this wide shot of the house again, and then there's a uh, a quote there attributed to Henry James. It says, "No one will ever know." whether children are monsters or monsters are children. Uh, so I want to reveal something. This didn't exactly sound like Henry James to me. And I was like, <laughs> I wonder if that's an authentic quote. I looked it up. It appears it is not. I could not find <laughs> this as a Henry James quote anywhere. And I could find people saying that Fulci made this up and attributed it falsely to Henry James. Why pick Henry James? I'm not sure. I mean, Henry James, like, what's the connection there? I guess James wrote Turn of the Screw, which is a horror classic. Uh, mm -hmm. Otherwise, I, I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, maybe he was just inspired uh, by the works of Henry James and yeah. just wanted to throw in a... A quotation, uh, but then not a real quotation? I don't know. Good choice either way. <laughs> Good choice. So there you have it. House by the Cemetery. Uh, there's just, there's so much to love in this one. Well, so one of the things I did think was actually kind of interesting toward the end was, uh, did I understand correctly that a lot of the times the, the characters have heard a sound of a child sobbing and they thought it was Bob and so they were looking for Bob but it wasn't Bob. It turns out it was the monster and the monster was sobbing with the voice of a child. Uh, I'm not sure possibly, but also I think those are possibly just ambient ghost noises like ghosts of mm -hmm. all the children. Cause we, we get these scenes of all these other bodies that have been cut to pieces down there. We see at one point, a, like a slaughtered child that looks a little bit like Bob. And I don't know if this is a, a vision of the potential future or this is a child that was killed in the past. I think there's um, uh, that's during the, the the playing of the haunted tape. Oh yeah, the haunted cassette tape. Where Doctor Peterson is like, "Oh, not the children, the children." It's labeled. I think it says Peterson personal. Yes, and you remember <laughs> what Norman does with that after he's through listening to it? He's like, "Well, oh, this is going directly into the fire yes. that's burning in the library on a Sunday when it's yeah. closed. Why is there an open brazier in the library?" So to keep the, the tape, keep the place warm, or just in case cursed uh, documents or recordings um, are found. There's like a sign saying, "Remember, if you find a cursed document or cassette tape in the library, incinerate immediately. <laughs> Be considerate of others." I mean, I gotta say, we're deep enough in the dream logic of the plot by that point. It feels right. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's House by the Cemetery. That is it, House by the Cemetery. Um, so this one is uh, this one's pretty widely available at this point. Uh, you can find 
You can ultimately find it streaming a lot of places, and the the version streaming you can you know purchase or rent digitally. Uh, I find that it, it tends to be the restored version. Uh, that's the version I watched. I I watched the first half of it on my trial of AMC Plus in Apple, and then my trial ran out, and I had to switch to a trial of like Showtime or something to finish <laughs> wow. watching it. So I took the cheapskate approach, but. Uh, I was also very tempted to pick up the the handsome blue underground uh, Blu-ray of this, which has you know fully restored, but also oh the version I was looking at it comes with uh, with all these behind the scenes features, and also it comes with the soundtrack as a CD, which was very tempting as well. Oh yeah, it sounds like a steal. All right, well we're going to go ahead and, and close it up here. We're gonna we're gonna close up the uh, the house by the cemetery. We're gonna put the uh, the realtor's lock on the front door. And uh, we'll be back next week with another another weird film. Uh, but yeah, thanks again for uh, everyone who's uh, who's enjoyed these or or put up with these episodes over the past year. If you want to listen to weird more episodes of Weird House Cinema, uh, we air it every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast, believe it or not, and uh, we do our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, I know it's kind of hard to tell during the month of October because we have a lot of a lot of creepy content uh, thrown in there if you're just discovering us or, or something. But um, yeah, core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact or Monster Fact on Wednesday. On Monday, we have uh, Listener Mail, and over the weekend... Uh, we air a rerun. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 